welcome to episode 12 of Vimma Babes Podcast. In this episode I talk with MJ about gender, becoming a feminist, working in the theatre, sex work and more. This is the last episode for season 1 of Vimma Babes. Thank you so much for listening and making it so great. Like the Facebook page to be kept in the loop of when the next season will start. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Alright, hi MJ. Hey Lizzie. Thanks for coming on the Vimma Babes Podcast. Ooh. <laughs> What does being a feminist mean to you? Um, this is always a really, I find that this is always a really interesting question. Um, I guess it means being part of a movement of people that are not only advocating for equality, but actually I see them as advocating for liberation of all people. Yeah. Um, I guess through feminism, I've found... A language to express my own gender identity and my own sort of way of fitting into the world yep. not necessarily as just as a woman as such but as a person and as a, a sort of a, a, a being of many complexities yes so in the interview with Luca they mentioned that you were the one that described to them how is a gender yeah can you describe brief well not just take your time (laughs) oh that's a dangerous thing to let me do (laughs) um no really so i guess see i can only just a sort of verbal disclaimer i guess i can only really describe how that term functions for me yeah your experience yeah so a gender can mean different things for different people yeah depending on their position you know where they see it to me it's so a the 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 suffix a means like a lack of or a sort of lack of identification with and to me i guess a gender means it's a bit more of a step up from gender neutral where gender neutral denotes to me the the lack of a presence of gender whereas to me a gender is the lack of identification with sort of any prescribed gender so I don't suit so when I, I guess to explain that further, I sort of, I don't really identify with any gender, either binary or non-binary. So the, the understanding of gender is just like a blank page to me, yep. like nothing. Like I've never really felt comfortable in a gender or in a sort of prescribed gender role or a, even within non-binary genders, I don't feel like any of them really fit me. Yeah. So that's that's how it works for me. Like I, I can't speak for anyone else. But um and just I think the absence of, of gender is a huge I think thing for for me. That's so how long when did you how long have you sort of been alien? Well, I only to be honest, I only really sort of started actively referring to myself as agender last year okay um i've known for a very long time that i was in some way like male and female didn't fit for me yeah so like they um i've known that for quite some time but i didn't really have the language to explain my lack of or absence of gender Mm -hmm. and my lack of experience of gender and yeah I didn't but I've always sort of identified as transgender and genderqueer for uh, many many years yeah 
Um, initially, I came out as transmasculine, so a trans man, and I, I sought sort of, you know, hormone replacement therapy and all that sort of stuff um, because I thought, well, woman necessarily, but then I didn't really have the understanding that I didn't have to be anything that, you know, you could be, um, but, you know, and that's not wrong, but yeah. you don't have to be. Yeah. Because I guess you were like, well, I don't feel like a woman. I guess may, that must mean that I have to be yeah. masculine. Yeah, <clears throat> and like I'm, I'm still sort of seeking. You know, I, I still think that like for me, I think that hormone replacements are probably the best way to go. But they're not necessarily to make me more masculine yeah. as such, but they are to, I guess, less, less feminine and yeah. less conventionally feminine. And it's not that I necessarily. I know, like, the non-binary gender sort of element of transgender people have copped a lot of pushback um, from, you know, people who identify with binary genders because we're seen to sort of invalidate those things. But I guess, no, that that's never, that's never, well, to me, it's never been a thing. It's just sort of explaining to people that they don't necessarily have to. Yeah identify as male or female if that's not where they're comfortable and yeah so that's what that means to me do you know this is a very big question but do you know much of the history of where the genders began not a lot because this is like me putting a lot of like (gasps) you're a gender you have to know everything no um well (laughs) there are so many different creation myths of gender you know, and a lot of them are related, rooted in religion. You know, them. when I when I was growing up, we were taught to believe I was taught to believe you know Adam and Eve were the first people. Yeah, me too. Um, but the first gender, um, you know, as I progressed through university, I became a, a member of the socialist left, and we were taught that gendered roles and gendered labour um, began with the, the advent of, you know, one man, one plow with the, the idea of private property and private production. Um, but there's a whole range of sort of philosophical and, er, sort of moral, you know, Mm. understandings of gender for some people. It's very spiritual. Um, genders began, you know, genders, and there are many genders associated with certain cultures and they begin, you know, they take spiritual origins. Yeah. So, you know, it's it I think where gender begins, where genders began, is you really where you have your your moral you know, your cultural viewpoint like can tell you where that, you know. Yeah. Jessamy recommended that I read the Cordelia Fine. Cordelia book, Yes. Yeah, Delusions of Gender. Me. It's it is so fabulous. Okay. I yeah. It's sitting if, next to my bed, I've got it. She lent it to me. I just it also. The, I think it is pretty much the seminal book on debunking this idea that there is a male brain and a female brain, and I think that's basically her argument is that she uses the term neurosexism, like which you know talks about the idea of there being a male brain and a female brain and. You know, that men's brains do this and female brains do that and you know it's it's so great to just have a resource that mm. was so it when it was written and it was only written well, relatively recently it was so it just sort of blew everything out of the water and I mean but when you get to the heart of it it's not saying anything remotely controversial yeah 
it's just a book that says <clears throat> it's just an argument that is well no uh, <laughs> thinking and cognitive functioning can be influenced by a range of things and gender isn't necessarily one of them yeah so did you do gender studies and things at university i did i was a major in gender studies at the trobe university and i loved that program i i just um have so much respect for that program and i really really excuse me <clears throat> soapbox sad that not um as many students as possible are going to get the opportunity to study it um has yeah. it been closed it hasn't been closed it's actually been reintroduced as a major but for in 2012 when i started studying it, it was um restructured okay so that a lot of students couldn't major in it um in that period yeah um um but it's now been reopened um, a lot of students in those intervening years have lost the ability to to major in it okay and which is really sad yeah, because um anybody that had been at the most recent Shoshala Femme would have met the wonderful Carol de Cruz who's the convener of that program who is an academic that I have an amazing amount of respect for who's got a background in community activism who just is com- I've never met a more an academic more committed to her students and more passionate about her subject matter and so, I, yeah, I hope that everybody eventually gets the chance to study. Yeah. Um, in the past, you've said to me that feminism helped you with your gender. Mm-hmm. How, <clears throat> when people like Jermaine Greer and, blanked on her name, the woman from Melbourne. Sheila Jeffries. Sheila Jeffries. Or as I refer to, Voldemort. Um, <laughs> she who shall <laughs> she- not be named. But that's okay. They are sort of put on this platform as being like Australia's best feminists for those who don't know differently. Um, how does that play into it for you? Look, I just want to say straight off, I I have an enormous amount of privilege in being able to take or leave those arguments because as a trans, as a gender neutral sort of trans you know, soft, masculine-ish, leaning individual. I'm not the brunt. I'm not the the category of person mm-hmm. that's bearing the brunt of those identities. Yeah. It is, it is more largely like... trans-feminine and trans, yeah. you know, tra- trans women who are bearing the brunt of those. So, you know, and I'm not the person that's having my gender identity called into question, cons- you know. Um, so that's just, I guess, my verbal disclaimer around that. But... Uh, so I'm I'm relatively privileged to be able to take or leave yeah. their arguments. And so I guess maybe I should say that um, what Jermaine and <clears throat> what Jermaine Greer and Sheila Jeffries have sort of argued is that trans women aren't real women. Yeah, I mean that's just that's I mean obviously anybody with a mind of their own who can engage in some critical thinking, you know, the least amount of critical thinking necessary can determine that that's that's just utter rubbish. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the, I think the damage has been done mm. for trans women in, in, and, and I think that a lot of damage has been done to, to, to generations of trans women because these views, you know, it, it's not good enough to say, oh, they're relics of their time, you know, they're, 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 because they're issues that are being, they're Well, she was on about. Q&A the other day. Yeah. And, and Sheila Jeffries was a tenured professor at Melbourne University up until last year. You know, these, these are, 
attitudes that are being brought forth in, in, in the academy and in Australian social life today. Yeah. And I don't think it's good enough to say that it's a relic of its time because – but I, I'd like to think now that we have the benefit of information yeah. and we can provide significant allyship and support to trans women um, based on the information that we have. And I think that, to quote Sally Goldner, who is a wonderful transgender activist um, – you know, who has decades of, of activism and has come up against these attitudes time and time again. You know, she said recently, we, as in the transgender community, we set the tone for how we're mm. spoken about. You know, it is our language and our needs and wants and desires that should form the basis of these arguments. It's not, you know, that that's going to, and, and I very much agree, and that's a lot of what I think as well, but I think Sally said it really well when she said, no, we set the tone for how yeah. we spoken about. We determine the arguments that are put forth about us, and, you know, I, and I think that that's so true. And um, But I do think that as much as we can, we should support the people who are affected the most by word, you know, by these words, and mm. that's, you know, very marginalised trans women and, and you know, sort of feminine presenting people, you know, I think they deserve our support and should always have it. So, yeah. boo, transphobia, <laughs> boo. Yeah. So, <laughs> did you grow up a feminist? <clears throat> Once again, interesting question. <laughs> I look looking back, I can say I did. Yeah. Uh, at the time, I didn't really have the understanding of what feminism yeah. was. I think it's the same for me. Like, I can sort of look back and be like, well, that's why I didn't like that thing. Or, like, it's I had these feelings about something and now I can understand that what I was feeling was this. I just didn't know how to articulate it at the time yeah, or understand absolutely. where it came from. Absolutely. Um, I grew up in a church and school environment. Oy. <laughs> and it was the simultaneously best and worst thing from my feminism. Um, it sort of – I didn't really understand – what feminism was. I had an aunt who was a feminist, but it was kind of used by my relatives as a pejorative sort of, oh, she's a feminist. Yeah. Oh, mm. Let's but, do so-and-so. Yeah. Of course she feels And I'm like, so what does that mean? You know, <laughs> me being like stubborn as, what can I swear? Yeah. yeah stubborn as fuck <laughs> teenager that I was going, eh, you don't like that. I'm going to like that. No, but in it was kind of strange because you had this openly feminist auntie and then you had in the same family my grandmother, who was probably more feminist in practice and was really revered by the family as, you know, this strong migrant woman. Yeah. And I just was like, hey, if she, what? She's, you're putting her down for having the same traits that she, what? <sighs> Confusion. Um, but, yeah, we I grew up surrounded by not really sort of any, like, huge, fem- you know, feminist role models, but I think – um, apparently my biggest feminist role model was, yeah, my yaya, like who is a migrant woman from Greece and she taught us a whole lot about what it means to be strong and, and female at the same time. And, yeah. you know, I, I have so much respect for those women who just sort of, they did what not a lot of women in their community could do. And so, yeah, I grew up really admiring her and, and, it wasn't until I left home and sort of started developing my own ideas that I openly sort of started identifying as feminist. Yeah. yeah. 
So has any of your family gotten more embroiled with it as of late, or? No, not really. <laughs> so that's still just like, oh, MJ's gone to the dark side. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm a Jedi at heart, and, you know, I'm not 100% on the dark. Look, sort of, not really. I think there is just a, you know, surrounding me and my sort of very open feminism and gender diversity, I kind of am the black sheep. It's, very, it's a quite a really terrible expression, but... um. I'm sort of that that weird family member that yeah, everyone talks about, and, that and lives I kind in of and who lives a crazy life. Yeah, and who I, I but it, it's kind of funny how I'm viewed in my family because I really have a pretty boring life. Like, <laughs> like it's just that they're conservative and boring, and I'm probably more radical and boring. Mm. You know, <laughs> um, my my brother's always been. It's it's kind of strange, like. He's as well. He you wouldn't hear him say I'm a feminist, but I think in his practice in 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 life, he's probably more the most feminist one of my family. Yeah, which yeah. is also really important. And it's sometimes like labeling it is trying to put too much pressure on it or something when people are already doing the things. And absolutely, and and to me, it's I don't know because I've because of my gender identity, I've always had a, a pretty. You know, I've, I've also – there have been times when I've gone, feminism, no, that's versus yeah. gender and middle-class white women. Yeah. Yeah, no. But I think to me the you can have the label and not your practice not be feminist at all. And when we see this in society again and again, you know, um, but you can sort of not really identify with the label but your words and actions and, they, you know, your deeds and, and sort of life doings be yeah. quite – feminist yeah to fit into a category so yeah, i think it's 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 kind of a and also i think that if when any movement gains traction and it gains you know i don't want to say popularity i don't quite know what the right word is but it's sort of you know we're being proven to be right <laughs> in any way yeah Catherine in the first episode was saying like when you know you're on the right side of history yeah i was like absolutely yes I definitely that's feel a that a lot of the time um the pushback and this sort of pressure to not identify with that movement or not identify get stronger. Mm. So yeah, I I I think that you know, but I also always think that labels are there for whoever wants them or whoever yeah. doesn't, you know. And if you don't, but you live a feminist life by practice, that's yeah. Gee, that's so good, <laughs> you know. And you're an awesome human, and I love you. Um, yeah. So you've started a theatre company. Yeah. yeah. And it's for... So I started... Well, I was getting towards... Because my minor was theatre at Latrobe. And I was getting towards the end of my degree and doing a lot of theatre, doing a lot of plays. But noticing the sort of very rigidly gendered, binary gendered and male and female elements of theatre yeah you know I'd have to read for parts and they'd be you know male parts or female parts and there was not a lot of um, allowance or space for people who don't fit those categories in theatre um and they're still seen as a very sort of niche market of Mm -hmm. theatre or they're so I started a company called Lorikeet Productions because Lorikeet's a rainbow and so are queers. But, you know. <laughs> I um, love seeing them. That's the thing. Australian birds are so beautiful. Oh, 
And so I created this company at the beginning of last year, um, no, end of beginning of this year, sorry. I can't remember when I graduated. Um, <laughs> it's all a blur. It's all a blur. Um, that is designed for gender conforming and trans young people who want to make theatre about their lived experience of gender awesome. identity. And I also, yeah, I sort of, yeah, it's it's still very much in its fledgling stages. Like I'm looking to, like I've, I've just made, I'm just in this week going to create a Facebook page for it and, yeah. you know, do all those very rudimentary things. But it's there and it's going to be doing stuff very soon. Um, if you have any awesome femo trans philanthropists amongst your listeners get in contact with me because money is always a problem yeah <laughs> yeah so do you think you guys will write your own plays or the we're gonna put yeah i mean that's the ethos behind it like that's very much the it's writing your own plays um, di- um devised theater um immersive theater so not necessarily scripted stuff but stuff that looks at the ways in which gender nonconformity can be put on stage and sort of subverts the idea that theatre is rigidly gendered because, like, I always find that contemporary mainstream theatre, the way it's become rigidly gendered is is not how it started out. Um, Original Western theatre, there were various displays of gender because women yeah. you know women weren't allowed to perform yeah you know um so men were forced to take on if they wrote female characters because a lot of scriptwriters and playwrights were men in those days they were forced to take on female roles and take on many gendered roles so yeah how we've got from that to where we are now has always been really confusing to me and so yeah i want to break it down a bit and also one of my main thinkings as a practitioner as a theater practitioner has always been access Mm -hmm. so how can we get because i don't know about you but i'm sick of seeing cis heterosexual able-bodied white men dominate yeah stages and space in public artistic life and so one of my key sort of ethos as a practitioner has been and one of the founding i think principles with this company has been access yeah so who doesn't get on stage often who doesn't get who gets locked out of you know and so yeah getting those people on stage that haven't necessarily been mm. performers previously what about when cisgendered people play transgendered people in mainstream media like with Eddie and the Danish girl once again <laughs> once again um, it's usually depictions of trans femininity that sees men of so it's usually what makes it so offensive is the idea that cis men can play trans women because trans women aren't really women it goes back to that so of course we can get a man to play that person because that person's not actually a woman so why wouldn't it be a problem yeah you know and i mean it's rubbish it's rubbish and it's immensely invalidating and dysphoria inducing and horrible to trans women that see it and but it also locks it it, there's the further sort of annoyance and discrimination of every time you cast a cis 
gender man, as a trans woman, not only are you incorrectly or offensively portraying that person's gender identity, but you're locking out a trans woman actor. You're denying her the ability to perform. Yeah. And you're denying her the ability to create a career for herself and giving it to someone who's infinitely more privileged and, mm. you know, and that's, and that's, it just irritates me. It just, it's just immensely irritating. Is there ever the question of, but it's raising awareness? That it's not. A, a cisgender man. Well, I mean, maybe it is, but it's doing, it's going about it the completely wrong way. Yeah. I mean, I don't see how a man who identifies as a man and has lived his whole entire life as a man can possibly begin to understand the lived experience of, of what it's they under- bodily yeah. like to live as a trans woman. Because yeah, they are just and, acting. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, and this is what Eddie, Eddie Redmayne's tried to say with the Danish girl. And, I mean, I just want to say that, like, there's been a lot of information put out about the character he played and, you know, like, it just it was just wrong, <laughs> you know. Um, the... You wouldn't have a white person acting as a black person. Well, when you do, it's quite correctly called out as blackface and it's called out as racism and and I just don't – I cannot understand the disconnect between, well, we see this as wrong. Yeah. But we don't quite see this as wrong and we see that this is acceptable. And it's like, you know, we haven't – I often say that transgender issues are the sort of the last – it's become sort of the last bastion of acceptable discrimination, you know, It's perfectly, and obviously I say this with air quotes around everything because it's not acceptable in any way, shape or form, but it's still seen as acceptable to portray trans women a certain way. It's still seen as acceptable to portray, you know, um, trans femininity in a certain way and it's, it's where you wouldn't necessarily portray other issues in the same way mm. and but that said you know we still have people doing blackface yeah. in 2016 and you know it's it's so i think we've still got a long 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 way to go and that's my rambly arrival at that point <laughs> um but yeah i just i it just frustrates the daylights out of me when getting back to your question when the whole, oh, but we're raising awareness question comes into it. And it's like, well, A, a, because the other issue is, well, you're not giving the space to someone who actually Hmm. is that identity to speak. You're taking it away from them. You know, the the people that should be at the forefront of campaigns to raise awareness about transphobia are are trans people. Yeah. And, you know, and obviously there are different layers of privilege within the trans community of, you know, so – at the forefront of raising awareness about their issues should always be the people who are most marginalised, not people who've never had any lived experience of gender yeah. diversity at all, or not people that willingly take roles that are not acceptable for them. It's just, oh, yeah. It, it, it is, it's one of the very yeah, thing, the many that, things that make me rage in yeah. GC. <laughs> it gives me many rage. The role of the allies and to be like, this is what you should feel. It's to be to sit back and listen and then help. Absolutely. And I think particularly when you've got people that are very have 
very public platforms, mm. you can use your power, your 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 wizardry for good, like, and you absolutely should. But it should never come at the expense of the people you're trying to support. You know, they should always be advocating for them, you know, for for their own issues yeah. and setting the tone for how they're talked about. But that doesn't mean you can't advocate for them but you just have to do it in a very polite and considered and sometimes the best thing you can do is nothing at all yeah it's just to make space for that that group to talk about themselves and ah yeah i'm not a fan of jared leto or eddie redmayne or any of the cis men that have played trans women lately or ever so (laughs) many middle digits in their direction i think um, so you're also a sex worker. Indeed. Tell me more about that. Oh, do you want to know? I have no experience of it at all. Okay, that's... Mm. So, I don't... So the this... argument... Let's start from an argument. Yeah, point. okay. The cool. argument that I often get asked from some people is, if a person is selling themselves, how is that a feminist act? Funny, sorry. <laughs> Did you just throw up a little bit? <laughs> okay, so I just want to. There are many things I so can. Many okay, I, said, I am sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. It's not it, you. It's I know they're not your words. I know that they're things you've been told. For a start, sex workers don't sell themselves. Yeah. Um, if you've ever listened to anybody like Jane Green, um, I will give references to all the people I quote. If you ask, yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, or any sex worker activists speak yes. in they it is impossible to sell yourself You're selling the act of sex you sell and the you sell the service of sex okay. yeah you cannot sell your body which we get told we do so many times and retain it unless you've cloned yourself yeah, well, which we have not yet the scientific advances to do so and <laughs> there are many ethical issues around but quite frankly i would love yeah. um, i would love a, cl- a clone to go to work for me but it hasn't yet happened so until that day i sell the service of sex yeah. i i would love if anybody that honestly believes that sex workers sell themselves got a plumber to their house and said that they owned them for an hour you know yeah. they don't they They're own selling and service. they own the uh, you know they the plumber is selling the act of fixing your loo or whatever, yeah. you know. And it's just – but also – sorry, I forgot. I got a bit rage and juicy. What's um, <laughs> How is that a feminist act? Yes. Well, <sighs> um, does it have to be a feminist act? That was what I was going to say. It, it, I think that the ultimate act of controlling your own labour, so of controlling – where your labor's directed and the you know I'm, I'm getting a bit far lefty but i will sort of i guess keep it i guess not heavy with jargon i see that as the ultimate feminist act i see saying being able to and it is a predominantly female dominated industry although there are men who are sex workers and i know many men i have many colleagues that are men mm-hmm. um and there are a lot of wonderful non-binary gender diverse sex workers i know as well the the industry is dominated by women yeah. and i think that the ultimate i think that it's inherently feminist to me because it allows women to to set to control their own labor yeah and control and control their means of production i mean um you know control so your own kpis absolutely well yeah i mean like that's not to say that 
every sex worker is a feminist or should, you know, we should be forced yeah. to identify as feminists because a lot of us don't because a lot of us have very complex histories with feminism and a lot of older sex workers I know have felt the brunt of really, really anti-sex worker sentiment in feminist circles and I think it is on them. But to me I see it as feminist because I do see it as, as women being able to control their own labour and being able to achieve an independence. Like I've heard a lot of stories, of, and, and this is true for me as well, of, of sex work being able to encourage people to university in because a nine to you know a part-time job in a cafe would not have allowed them to parent or pay the bills or do that and go to university at the same time um and there are studies coming out now uh no there was one recently done i think in two well not super recently and i know there was one done in 2008 here to try and get a demographic of who australian sex workers were and it found overwhelmingly that a lot of them are university educated and or going to university mm. so sex work allows them to do that and i see being able to have control over your own economy is something that you know women fought for and, yes. and still fight for as feminists with equal pay and all the rest of it but it's something that sex work, a lot of sex workers already have yeah and yeah to me that makes it feminist but i often i don't think that it necessarily has to be a feminist act and but i think that it is in in some ways as well yeah so, is it legal in Australia? Okay. In New South Wales, it's decriminalised. Yeah. So, each – because we don't have federal laws governing sex work, unlike New Zealand, um, we have states – Is it decriminalised in New Zealand? It is decriminalised yeah. in – I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> well, um, so – each, I should know that I'm from New Zealand. Uh, you'd be surprised. A lot of New Zealanders don't know that. Um, <laughs> why would they – um, we have state-based laws, state yeah. sex work. So in New South Wales, it is decriminalized, meaning that there are no laws that criminalize sex workers or their clients. It's completely removed from, and so the operating of sex work businesses and laws, uh, sort of regulations governing sex work are seen as those, uh, similar to other businesses, okay. not, uh, it's not criminal if they're not criminal acts go pay tax so yeah they they like t- taxes finances uh permits to to build buildings where you can build them they're they're, they're business laws not criminal laws mm-hmm. they're business rules not criminal laws um in other states including so in in victoria it's a mess because we have brothels uh so indoor premises uh legal so mm-hmm. meaning you're not going to get raided and shut down for operating them, but you have to have a license to build them. And, um, yeah, you, you have to have a license to build them. And your uh, street-based sex work in Victoria, so outdoor work, is completely illegal. And it's something that sex workers have been and continue to be subject to immense amount of police harassment for. Um, the act of... Buying from a street-based sex worker is illegal and the act of selling sex as a street-based sex worker is illegal. Um, and with private work, so work where you're operating as a sole trader, you're not licensed to, um, you're not working indoors for a brothel, but you can work agency. Um, if you want to work privately, you have to be registered with the state government. Um, obviously, that's causing us immense amount of problems 
That's um, like wouldn't sex offenders have to register? It's really problematic because if you want any kind of vinyl, so non-sex work career after sex work, yeah. you kind of can't have it because the government will know your real name, your working name, and a lot of your details, and you get a – but you have to do that in order to be able to work legally. And you you have a, a sex work act. So the Sex Work Act is what governs sex work – the laws that govern sex work in Victoria, the act that governs sex work in Victoria – you have a registration number and you have to display that on your website and uh, the laws around private advertising are ridiculous. You can't actually show, you can only show very blurred shots of your, you know, you have to blow your face, you can't show you know, certain parts of your body in any way and it's just ridiculous. Um, and there's a lot of private work and you can only go to a client's house and mm-hmm. sort of do this thing called out calls. They can't come to you, which is ridiculous because it puts you at immense risk. Mm. It can put you at a lot of risk. Um, yeah, that's in, in New South Wales. Um, I think in the northern ter- in Western Australia, it's very similar to Victoria. I, I think it, it's illegal in a lot of places. Um, I don't know a lot about the rules, in, but I just know that it's very illegal in Queensland and I'm not sure about the Northern Territory of Tasmania. I'll have to, have to look up. But it's a, it's a mess and... It'd be so much better if we had, like New Zealand passed in 2003, got through by something ridiculous like two votes, um, federal laws decriminalising sex work across the country um, because it would make it a lot easier for migrant sex workers because you can't get a visa to specifically for sex work. It'd make it a hell of a lot easier because people wouldn't be at legal risk Um and also it's been proven time and time again that the removal of laws governing sex work has best practice for health and education for yeah. sex workers. And that's been proven time and time again that it's the best you know, for HIV prevention. It's the best for, you know, legal recourse to justice. It's the best for everything. And, yeah, but so, yeah. So it's a little bit of a tangent, semi the same thing. When violence against women is reported in the media if it's like a sex worker it's not reported at all really or it's reported from a very blamey standpoint Mm, 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 mm. so yeah um why do you think that one life is less worth than another well it's not (laughs) (laughs) let's just in the media oh no 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 i know like it's it's not um but yeah. I think the the obviously the media are an arm of the government. I think yeah. it's really you know the media are you know big arm of you know the media and the government are a big sort of arm of the ruling class, and it's very 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 the project of the ruling class to paint some humans as less than other humans, yeah. you know, and that's how they keep power. So yeah, that's the, that's why that mm. happens. Um, I also think that a lot of the the media is controlled by you know and people with very very anti sex work agendas, and they wish to to keep the public portrayal of sex workers as victims as you know pathetic yeah. humans of you know you know, but not really paying any understanding to the fact that structural this you know. I was just thinking in 2013, 
um, around the time that Adrian Bailey was getting sentenced for murdering Jill Maher, a sex worker in St Kilda was murdered, Tracy Connolly. Her murder's still unsolved, and she was a sex worker. And every headline that followed her referenced her profession mm-hmm. because she was a sex worker. We don't know the situation surrounding Tracy's death, if it anything had anything to do with her job at all. Okay. But the what was put about was yeah, yeah, she was blamed for her own death. Yeah. And I think that it's massively important that we understand that this happens because we understand that this level of victim blame happens because people see sex workers as less than mm-hmm. and they're encouraged to see sex workers as less than and the police ignore them because they can get away with it. The, you know, victims choose to prey on sex workers because they know that society reinforces violence against, you know, and I think the media portray sex workers as less than because they can get away with it. Yeah. And that's, that's, I guess, the short answer to that question. And because we don't have a view of sex workers as a part of society, and I think this is where decriminalisation goes a long way because it normalises the sex industry and says, well, this is a job, you know, this is a job like any other job. Yeah. And it is, and, you know, this isn't a job that is acting, you know, that is you know, subpar or, you know, it, it isn't a reason to treat someone differently. Um, so what do you do to protect yourself? Well, I don't, I feel that I don't actually do a lot to protect myself, I guess, at work. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of people around me that are supportive of me that I know would politically and socially support me if I encounter violence on the job. And that goes a lot of way to, to self-protection as well. Um, But I also am a part of a political movement that advocates for decriminalisation and and that's an amazing – to me that is worth more than any kind of sort of (laughs) self-defence, I guess, because – I was going to ask that too. Like, is – Daniel Andrews is very supportive of a lot of things. Is he supportive of decriminalising sex work? I don't know. Okay. I should, but I don't. (laughs) Um, I don't know about Daniel Andrews specifically i don't know what his position is yeah at the moment um look at the moment the support in parliament in victorian parliament for decrim it it's it's there but it's not there in any sort of significant yeah um yeah it's 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 there but it's 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 not significant yet um we've got people like Fiona Patton from the sex party who say what you want about the sex party. She's, you know, they, they are a little problematic. Um, but Fiona Patton has talked about her lived experience of the sex industry and her desire to see decrim mm-hmm. supported. Um, you know, we've got sort of, it, it, it's kind of hard to pin down the ALP on this issue because they've backflipped a lot. Yeah. You know, and it depends, and to be brutally frank, it depends on whether how much they're empowered by and if they're in power at all. Um, because the AOP have a history of backflipping on significant social issues. So that's Australian Labour Party. Australian Labour Party. I'm guessing the Liberal Party is like a strong no. Well, <laughs> believe it or not, now this is this is a little bit funny. This is a, you'd think so. Yeah. But some, there have been significant historical supporters of GCRIM from within the Labour Party, from within the, the Liberal Party. 
but for reasons that you would expect the right to, you know, business yeah. reasons rather than social and moral ones. So, yeah, it, it's not really there. Um, we did manage to get some we, – we probably had more representation in parliament um, through the uh, advisory parliamentary advisory committees and stuff like that. Mm. Sex workers had a lot more input, direct input to parliament during the, the Liberal government than, than this one. Um, but, yeah, it's – it's difficult. It's really difficult. But I honestly think that the during, during the Labor government, during, no, during the Liberal government. We, so in um, during the previous um, Liberal government, uh, um, Malcolm Trimble or oh, no, no, state Liberal government. So right, right, yeah, okay. Sex workers had a seat on um, a parliamentary advisory committee mm. into the Sex Work Act. So there was a whole bunch of legal changes being made and there was um, – we don't have that anymore. We've lost that seat. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So funnily enough, we actually have less representation yeah. now than what we had before. Um, and we the laws that were changed regarding – so at the moment, um, sex workers have to undergo H- um, sexual health tests in order to be – so originally those laws were every month we had to go through it. Um, that's been pushed to three months, and that was done under a previous coalition, um, you know, state state coalition government. The, and a lot of those things are being pushed back against by by, by you know subsequent Labor governments. Mm. So, yeah, it's a bit of a funny one. <laughs> um, I think the support on the ground from MPs is there for de- decriminalisation in Victoria. Yeah. But it does depend on numbers and it depends on political clout as well and what the people who are advocating for, like how much political clout they have and how much they're actually willing to support sex workers because mm-hmm. Vixen, the, the peer, so sex worker-led sex, um, political organisation, um, is unfunded. Okay. So we run completely on volunteers. We don't We don't get money. So our ability to advocate is largely reliant on what other people will do on our behalf in Parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, we have very good on-the-ground organising, so we're able to do things locally. But if, for things like decrim, we really have to have other people get behind this um, because we just we don't have any money. Um, and the money in Victoria has unfortunately gone to largely, you know, to organisations that don't that are not made up of sex workers, and that's that's a problem as well. So, but I think the social the social support is there for decrim. Yeah, and I think it'll only be, only be a matter of time, but it just depends on how much time. Yeah. Plus, you're also training as an MMA fighter, so ah, yes, that's a pretty Woo! good form of um, Yeah, yeah, MMA. Gosh, my love affair with this. <laughs> I could talk forever about this sport. I just love it. Um, I'm a bit of a rust bucket at the moment. I've come back to it after quite some years away. Um, yeah, I have a background in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is a form of, um, jiu-jitsu, ancient form of, uh, you know, quite an old form of Brazilian wrestling. Um. Is it, what's, what am I thinking of? No, it's gone. Krav, no. Krav Maga is, is different. Nope. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) I won't worry. Um, I, yeah, so I've been... Back in MMA for since the end of last year, um, I've been training both in yeah in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and in kickboxing in Muay Thai kickboxing. 
I've actually was training in kickboxing four years ago, but I had to leave because this became unwell. Um, and I'm currently working towards a belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, I, I don't have any great aspirations in to fight professionally in MMA. I'm a bit too old for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm grappling with 20-year-olds at the moment, and I'm not definitely not 20 anymore. Um, <laughs> like it's, but I, I, yeah, I, I've always loved um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and MMA, and I watched my brother who runs an MMA gym used to run an MMA gym. I watched him, you know, train some awesome, awesome fighters and. Um, yeah, just sort of got onto it. Um, he always used to accuse me of copying everything he did, and I'm like, "Is he your older brother? He's younger." Oh, okay, I was going to say because older siblings are there to be copied. No, I know he's younger, but he's um he's always he was always the first into stuff. Mm. So yeah, so there was me like ten steps behind mm. quite a bit, but um yeah, I've always loved contact sport. I've always been, despite like being a, a larger person and despite being you know consistently warned off sport of any kind and told that I'd be embarrassing myself because I was bigger um yeah (laughs) yeah um you know I feel like it would be the opposite but honestly this might be a bit inappropriate but I think you know your listeners can maybe appreciate it um being a bigger person in a sport like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has its advantages because the goal in, in, in Jiu-Jitsu and, and in MMA as well is to get your opponent on the ground and to to, to basically make them submit and tap out and, you know, through, and, you know, through whatever rules mm. you can, you know, whatever techniques you can. And with a bigger person, <laughs> it's harder to do that. <laughs> And I actually have a lot more, I mean, I have a lot more ability to get my opponent on the ground than they do me. So, (laughs) but um, usually in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you are fighting people who are the same size as you. So that's kind of cancelled out a little bit. Um, Do you have any recommendations? Uh, Oh, FEMA recommendations. Uh, uh, so I, I have to do categories um, <laughs> for MMA or UFC Ultimate Fighting Championship she's a bit probo gonna love her but credit where credit is due um, she's very probo but I when you say probo you mean probo pro- I do <laughs> I forget that this is actually being recorded we're not just having a conversation Ah, um, well we are but you know there's a microphone in front of my face <laughs> Um, yeah, problematic. Uh, I would definitely go with Ronda Rousey. Why is she problematic? She has said some really not not unkind things about Fallon Fox, who is the UFC's first trans woman fighter. Okay. Um, yeah, and he's, (laughs) has generally been a bit of a loud, not very sports person-like. She's not, you know. Shown a lot of consistent respect for her opponents. Yeah, I remember the recent fight she had in Melbourne with Holly Holm, and Holly beat her, and it was oh, almost like she didn't Ronda just beat her. <laughs> she, really like sulky about it. She but. didn't respect her opponent. No, she didn't. Re- um, but in two thousand thirteen, eleven? No, yeah, two thousand thirteen. 
Before 2013, there were no women in the UFC. She went up to Dana White and said, I'm going to fight. Dana White is the male president of the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship. And he had said as recently as that year that there will be no women in the UFC. And Ronda Rousey went up to him and basically said, I will fight for you one day. I will be a champion for you one day. And he didn't believe her. And in UFC, I think it was 150-something, he announced that he thought, oh, fuck it, basically. And he announced that the head of that card would be Ronda Rousey and Liz Kamush. And however the cards fell for that fight, if Ronda won, women would get a go in UFC. And she did win. And she was champion until... Uh, Why the, not if the other person won? Because I think, um, well, either way, there were going to be women in the UFC, but I think he would have been more impressed if, if, and more willing to because Ronda had put herself on the line yeah. and gone. And that's what led to women being in the UFC. Is That was more sort of a culmination of events, but that was – so I definitely – it's hard. Um, some of what she says in a lot of her personal conduct, and she's also done things like – you know, hang out with Floyd Mayweather, who is accused yeah. of sexual assault and and those sorts of things. And it's very difficult to stomach her personally, but I know that a lot of the women fighters I've met wouldn't be around. And even Holly Holm, who beat her. Mm-hmm. Um, has, well, she said in her, like, I wouldn't be here unless. Yeah. And even the, the women. So Holly Holm beat Ronda Rousey for the women's bantamweight UFC title. Melbourne last year and it just looks so I can't I've tried to watch some of it I'm like it's so brutal it is but that's why I like it from a feminist (laughs) point of view because a lot of the time we shy away from from women being strong and brutal and we associate that with masculinity yeah and I like the fact that women can be like that yeah I like the fact that there's an emphasis on I mean just I saw that fight and I saw their open workouts, so they did a big uh, training session in Fed Square, both of them, and how physically amazing they are and physically strong and full of – and I like the fact that they're still feminine. You know, a brilliant quote from Ronda Rousey that she gave in a speech was, every muscle in my body has a purpose. Mm. You know, she was constantly derided for her body being masculine because it was strong looking. And she goes, my body's not – I'm a woman. I have a body. My body is feminine, you know, but everybody in my mu- every muscle in my body has a purpose. And that just, yeah, that's, I don't that's think awesome. I, it really needs explanation. <laughs> so I definitely recommend looking at her, some of her fights. I think uh, my sex work heroes, um, Jane Green, uh, vice president of Scarlet Alliance, and just Melbourne listeners may have heard her speak at Slut Walk and Reclaim the Night, and her stuff is just available anywhere. Um, also, I have a lot of respect for trans women of color who are sex workers as well. People like Monica Jones is a trans woman, um, sex worker from the U S who, uh, took on her university who, and took on, she was arrested and, um, the, the American, um, in Phoenix, Arizona, where she's from. Um, there's a whole bunch of laws that basically say that if you are black and trans and you are out at night, you can be accused of being a sex worker. 
if you have condoms on you, they can be used as evidence that you're going to engage in sex work. Even if that is not a... Absolutely. But what? that's... Yeah. <laughs> so she was arrested and she took on... She went to Geneva to contest not only the arrest, but the, the validity of the laws that arrested her and she, she won. It's amazing. And she was out here last year and the year before. So people like her, um, Sally Goldner, who is, yeah, a trans woman from Victoria, who I think has years and years and years and years of activism, who I just love, is a hero of mine. Um, I don't think I've got so many more. <laughs> um, but definitely, uh, if you're looking for resource, resources and authors who are non-binary, um, my non-binary awakening came when I read the work of Kate Bornstein. Um, she's just amazing. So, yeah, I very much recommend reading anything she's written. Mm. Um, her autobiography is called Queer and Pleasant Danger. I love it. Um, and it talks about her. She's a trans woman, but she's also done a lot of research and a lot of her writings around being non-binary. Yeah. Uh, her book called Gender Outlaw, which she wrote in 1994. Wow. Talks a lot about her journey with, as an, as a awakening as a trans woman. But yeah, she's just, she's one of my heroes. Awesome. Yeah. So I have many more, but yeah, <laughs> we can buy me a drink and we can talk about them. <laughs> my recommendation for this week is a podcast that I found called What Would a Feminist Do? Mm. by the guardian yeah i think think it's been out for a a while now i've heard of it but i'm very late to the game but i like it i really liked it yeah 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 awesome thank you very much no problem (laughs) no problem